Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. As, as, you know, in a, in a, in, a um, in terms of billions of dollars versus the explicit short on volatility, right? And so when we get in these really low periods of volatility, despite a lot of, of question marks out there, a lot of things that could send volatility much higher, um, it, it really makes me wonder how sustainable this is. In fact, you know, it, it, this is somewhat reminiscent of, of late 2018, right? We haven't quite had that blow off stage, that melt up, blow off top like we had in January 2018, where you had this huge move up and then just a rapid move in the other direction. But if volatility keeps falling, and if the dollar keeps, you know, tightening the screws on, on the, the financial system and on the U.S. markets, if we keep hearing news of, of poor economic growth in China, that a very poor uh, PMI print recently, poor economic growth in, in Europe. Um, that, that's going to put in a more and more vulnerable position. And I don't think we should underestimate the, the, uh, what a, a drop in the stock market can mean for the financial markets, for the financial system, I should say. Additionally, what does a drop in the stock market and an overall change in consensus mean for the debt markets? Not just the U.S. Treasury markets, but also the corporate debt markets, which are, are, are very overvalued and very ripe for a correction to the downside, potentially, which would be much more damaging than, than this uh, 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 blowout in, in volatility or a drop in just the equity. So that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Now, I got two more topics here, but first I want to go back to this tweets by Donald Trump. And again, he's talking about how China is adding a ton of stimulus to the economy while at the same time keeping interest rates low. That's true. They're injecting a ton of stimulus to their economy. And what's actually kind of interesting is their economy is not growing nearly as much as one would expect. In fact, as I said a minute ago, their PMI, uh, their, um, I forget exactly what that stands for, but but uh, uh, talks about their, their manufacturing, something, a manufacturing index, um, very poor uh, numbers, I think is 50.1. And, and anything above 50 is growth, but but that's not a whole lot of growth that we're talking about there. Uh, despite a ton of, of, of uh, injection of credit, of stimulus into the economy, in 2019, the Chinese economy has not really grown as much as you expect it to, as much as it has in the past when this type of stimulus has been delivered or something uh, similar to this. It's actually the most stimulus, I think, ever. Uh, the, the, I think it was January, the most stimulus in one month they've ever delivered. Where on the other hand, you have the Fed, who's incessantly lifting interest rates, which actually isn't quite true because they're actually pivoting on that. Quantitative tightening slowly on its way out. But basically what he says here is that if we lowered interest rates like one percentage point and did some quantitative easing, we'd go up like a rocket. And then he goes on to say that we have 3.2% GDP, wonderfully low inflation, and that we could be setting major records and at the same time making our national debt start to look small. And I think this is really a poor... Okay, so so let's take it at, at, at face value here. What we have now is a tight Fed that is leading to low inflation... And a very strong economy. Okay. 
Now, if he reverses that, if, if Jerome Powell and, and company come out and they cut rates, they start quantitative easing instead of quantitative tightening, we're going to have, what, even a stronger economy? Okay. Would we still have wonderfully low inflation? Probably not. And would our national debt start to look small? Absolutely not. I mean, it's really, a, a, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not, it, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's um, self-serving. It's, it's short-sighted. It's, it's disappointing, uh, to, to be honest, um, to be calling on the Fed to lower interest rates. No, I get it. I get it. What about Obama? What did Obama get during his presidency? And I'll tell you what he got. He got one of the easiest eight years ever from the Federal Reserve, right? He walked into office and they were doing quantitative easing. We're in the midst of the financial crisis, right? And he gets almost 0% interest rates for almost his entire term until Yellen and company finally raised rates in, in, at the end of 2015 and then at the end of 2016 when he was on his way out, right? I get it. But does that mean that that's what we should have indefinitely? Like Obama got eight years of that. Now let's give Trump eight years of that. And while he got eight years of that, then, then whoever comes after Trump should get another eight years of that. No, that's not sustainable. And that's one of my big beefs with, with not, the tr- not, not with the Trump administration, but with the Federal Reserve, is that no matter how often and how exasperatedly they say that they're independent, they want to remain independent, there's just too much power there. I'll put it this way. If the Fed comes out and loosens enough to the point where they don't spark a complete panic in the markets because why is the Fed uh, lowering rates and doing QE if everything's all right? If they can find a right way to do this, they have the potential, especially in conjunction with other central banks, to push this period of economic growth out a little further, potentially through the election. And that's why they're so powerful, right? Do I think that the Fed was independent prior to the Trump administration? No. Do I think it is now? No, I don't. Now, whether it's working in conjunction with the Trump administration or not, that's another uh, topic for another discussion, but but I don't think it's independent. There's just too much power, right? And, and, and so you have to understand that if you are on the side of Donald Trump saying that, yes, this is what the Fed should do because this is what Obama did or because that's what's the best for their economy. Notice he said here that right now with these higher rates, which historically are still very low, but with quantitative tightening, we have wonderfully low inflation. You have to understand that cutting rates and doing QE is inflationary. You know, this goes back to a, to a uh, segment I was listening to, I think, yesterday on uh, NPR Marketplace of this guy, this Kai Rizdal, who, who does this. And he talks about inflation. He's talking about how, how people are confused, why inflation is so low. And he says, now, for most people, inflation's thought of as a bad thing, but actually, according to these experts, it's in your best interest. That's not what he said, but basically that, you know, he made some really poor debunked arguments about why uh, low inflation uh, could, could slow down things and how higher inflation is good. But you have to understand that for the vast majority of people, higher inflation eats away at salaries it eats away at savings. It eats away at most people's wealth. There are some people that can benefit from the inflation, but not most people. That's not good for the country. And I know I'm on a bit of a rant here, but it's not good. Um, and so, again, you have to, to really wonder here, what what is his motivation? Is it that he wants what's best for, for 
the economy or for the people? Or is it that he wants to remain in office for another year or two? Because you have to understand that along the way, the GDP numbers might look really pretty, but the Fed is more and more going to be backed into a corner that they cannot get out of. A corner represented by low interest rates and quantitative easing. So rant over. Uh, another topic I want to talk about real quick is, is the Venezuela coup, coup d'etat. Now, it's really interesting. I This goes back to this long-held belief of, I guess not super long, because it's not like I'm really old or anything like that, but, but that when it comes to these types of conflicts, like Venezuela, like Syria, like many other of these topics, uh, I think we, we limit ourselves when we view this through the lens of, good guy versus bad guy. I'm not a fan of that. That works for some situations, but more often than not, I think that we we end up with a bad guy versus bad guy. And I think that's kind of what we're at with Venezuela. That's my own personal opinion, that Nicolas Maduro is not a good guy. He's not a good leader. He's not, socialism is not the answer for Venezuela or, or anywhere, uh, any any country, right? He's not a good guy. I'm not a fan of him. And yet, the opposition to him, backed by the U.S. government, by the EU, by, by many other uh, countries, doesn't necessarily have to be good just because Maduro is bad. And so I'm watching this, this ongoing revolution, this coup, with a lot of interest. So basically what happened today is, is that after many months of, of basically deliberation, gathering support, etc., the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, finally announced this morning with a backdrop of, of some heavily armed troops and then... Uh, armored personnel carrier, that today's the day, uh, what, what he calls the, the uh, Operation Libertad, which I would assume Operation Liberty, basically. And he calls on his people and, and uh, his supporters, as well as the military, to defect, to, to, to help his cause, etc. Now, thus far, this is very low-level conflict. Some, some light arms fire exchanged, some you know smoke bombs, rubber bullets, live bullets, uh, Molotov cocktails, rocks. Not a whole lot going on here yet. But I think it has a lot of potential to to escalate. And, and that's really unfortunate because I think it's it's going to put... It, ultimately, who loses there over the short term is the Venezuelan people. Um, but what, what I find really interesting about this is the media. I've really had a difficult time today finding good sources on what's going on in Venezuela, and partly because of of a potential uh, clampdown on, on on social media within the country, partly because I'm an English-speaking individual and I can't read Spanish, right? And so that kind of limits me. But also just because of how the mainstream media works today. I mean, do me a favor. You don't have to do it now. You can do it after this video. Google Venezuela coup. What pops up for me is you have top stories by CNN, The Guardian, and CBS News. And then underneath that, you have Twitter. And guess who it is? Secretary Pompeo, Vice President Mike Pence, and the EU Council Press. <laughs> I mean, that's that's about as mainstream as it gets. Like, I'm not getting a whole lot of varying opinions here. I go to the news segment. I have the New York Times, The Guardian, CBS, USA Today, Washington Post, The Standard, Reuters, CNN, Washington Post, Democracy Now!, Right, and then eventually down here we get into um, um, uh, Prensa Latina, uh, some some other maybe less uh, mainstream, I guess, publications out there. But but it really makes me wonder. I mean, this is I think this is a, a deliberate attempt to 
um, unseat Maduro. Now, again, I don't think he's a good guy, but you know, I, I think Libya and Syria are great examples of the alternative is not always better, right? Whether that's civil war or an eventual overthrow of the leader in the case of, of Libya. I even saw, you know, from Bloomberg, you can go Venezuela coup, uh, Bloomberg. <laughs> they're, they're, they're going off. The, the headline there is there is no coup in Venezuela. And what they're saying here is that this isn't a coup because that would imply that this is illegal. And yet, according to our government and to the EU and some other governments, um, Juan Guaido is the legal leader of, of Venezuela. So how can this be illegal? And can you imagine, I mean, so often when, when we deal with these types of situations, let's reverse this situation. Like, let's reverse this uh, and put it back, phrase this in the opposite direction. Can you imagine if other countries were saying that a, a, an election was illegitimate here in the United States and that President or uh, candidate B should actually be president, not candidate A, who was uh, you know the official winner according to to the government. Now I get it. I'm not saying I believe in the election process in Venezuela, but is it really the U.S.'s place or the EU's place to determine if those elections were actually legitimate or not? Especially given their history in Venezuela and their bias. I don't think so, right? It'd be like saying Cuba. Right, uh, a nearby neighbor of the United States, if you want to call them a neighbor, um, or China, or North Korea, saying that the 2016 election was illegitimate. Right, there's not too many Americans that would say China, or North Korea, or Cuba are our friends, and so right away, whatever they're going to say, we're going to say no. It's obviously very biased. Right. There's another article that was is a bit of a tangent here, put out today talking about uh, what's his name, Eric Prince. Um, I think he's the CEO of, of what used to be called Blackwater. Maybe some of you guys remember this from, from the Iraq War. I don't think it's called that anymore. But but he was advocating, and he's going around talking about this plan of moving in something like 5,000 armed mercenaries, trained mercenaries from Latin America into Venezuela to help out this coup attempt. And who knows if this plan is going to go through or not. I'm sure uh, John Bolton's already signed off on it, maybe Pompeo as well. But it brought up a, a very interesting um, case study, I guess, from, I think it was 2007. I forget exact name of it, but it was a massacre that, that occurred in uh, um, in Iraq, during the Iraq uh, conflict. And it was basically that the Blackwater mercenaries had killed a large amount of, of civilians there. And and I think this is a Wikipedia article. It goes through all these other examples of, of, of just a real lack of trust of these mercenaries of these foreigners in Iraq during that time period. And again, can you imagine if you flip that around and you compare it to the United States? If if uh, China or Russia, rather than putting their boots on the ground, had hired some mercenaries to, to participate in a uh, hypothetical uh, civil war here in the United States. I mean, that, that, that would... I, I, you know, people talk about this all the time. Uh, recently, Trump actually, to his credit, you know, pulled out of some some. I didn't read the whole headline. Some UN arms treaty um, relating to to small arms and and how you know many people have some for some time now wondered if the UN is going to try and impose gun control here in the United States. And he had you know reportedly pulled out of it. Uh, let's see here from the Guardian: Trump withdraws from UN arms treaty as NRA crowd cheers in delight. 
that's a legitimate fear among many gun owners that the UN or the EU or some governing body, NATO, in conjunction with with potentially a liberal government, will come into the United States and take away our Second Amendment rights. Right, that type of interference, we would be up in arms, literally, and in terms of of uh, small arms, if that were to happen here. Right, and so you really you have to. Consider this from all angles. Again, am I saying I support the Maduro regime? Absolutely not. Just like I, I'm not a fan of Kim Jong-un. Not a fan of Putin, honestly. Not a fan of Xi Jinping, right? Pick your, pick your leader around the world. I'm not a fan of a lot of them. Doesn't mean that I'm a fan of the alternative. And I think that's... I'm not saying... I'm not going to tell you how to believe or what to think or anything like that. I'm not the mainstream media here. But you know, I think that's something really important to consider when we're in these types of situations. There's something wrong with supporting the U.S. and, and our, our foreign um, foreign affairs or, or whatever you want to call them, foreign conflicts. But you know, really consider this from all angles. Consider this as a native Venezuelan. Consider this... Um, if if a foreign country is doing that to us, consider the long-term ramifications of regime change of some of these other events, uh, these these occupations. So anyways, add another topic that I want to talk about here, uh, but but I'm going to save it for maybe a future video, future podcast. So stay tuned for that. As always, if you have thoughts on this video, let me know down below in the comment section. And as always, thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video or listening to this podcast and God bless. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So there's a handful of different topics that I wanted to talk about today, but I wanted to start off talking about the financial system, the, the broader financial system, and namely that you know I'm a strong believer that today's financial system is not nearly as robust, that it's far more vulnerable than I think many mainstream analysts and regulators realize or are willing to admit and I want to start off here by taking you back a couple months. Many of you guys probably remember this to December 23rd. In fact, we'll start before that to give you a bit of a backdrop. In early October, the end of September of 2018, the U.S. stock markets peaked. Now, recently, very recently, they've actually surpassed those highs, some of these indices, but they peaked around that time span. And then they began a long tumble down that lasted several months uh, because of fears of slowing global economic growth, rising treasury yields, uh, rising and the expectation of rising Fed funds rate, quantitative tightening, a couple other you know very acute reasons at the time. And we saw them move roughly to around a 20% loss. I think that was Dow Jones, S&P 500, somewhere around a 20%, the kind of the official threshold to reach bear market status. And then, with quite a bit of fear going into this weekend right before an abbreviated uh, trading day on on Christmas Eve, before we had Christmas and then traders resumed the work later that week, uh, we had a tweet come out on December 23rd, a Sunday, from Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. 
And the tweet reads, Today I convened individual calls with the CEOs of the nation's six largest banks. See attached statement. And then they have a attached statement talking about how Mnuchin conducted a series of calls today with um, Brian Moynihan, Bank of America, Michael Corbat, Citi, David Solomon, Goldman Sachs, Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase, James Gorman, Morgan Stanley, and Tim Sloan, Wells Fargo. And the CEOs confirm that they have ample liquidity available for lending to consumer, business markets, and all other market operations. He also confirmed that they have not experienced any clearance or margin issues and that the markets continue to function properly. Continuing, he goes on to basically say that tomorrow he'll be convening a call with the president's working group on financial markets, one some people have called the PPT or the Plunge Protection Team. This includes a board of governors of the Federal Reserve System, so the Fed, the SEC, the CFTC, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and he's also invited the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the FDIC to participate as well. And it says these key regulators will discuss coordination efforts to assure normal market operations. The next day, U.S. stock markets were massacred. And that kind of marked the low. After Christmas through the end of the year, they started moving up again. And since then, it's all been, uh, you know, green pastures or whatever you want to call it. It's been a pretty significant move to the upside. In fact, quarter one in 2019 was one of the best quarters ever in terms of the, the growth in the stock market. And I think by now, you know, four, five months later, a lot of people have forgotten how scary things were in December of 2018. And going back to what I said at the beginning of this uh, talk here, I was talking about financial stability and, and why I think the financial system is far less stable than many people realize. Now, the day after Steve Mnuchin tweeted this out and released this statement, the stock market, as I said, went down significantly. And why was that? I think a big part of it was not only momentum to the downside, but also many people were wondering, why? Why is the Secretary of the Treasury calling the CEOs of the largest U.S. banks? Why is the plunge protection team meeting today? Like, what's the meaning of this? Like, yeah, the stock market's moving down, but as far as we knew, you know, the economy is supposed to be doing well. In fact, he actually says here, we continue to see strong economic growth in the U.S. economy. Quarter four was actually a pretty poor quarter in terms of economic growth. But they were left asking the question, why? Why is this such a concern? And then after that, I'll remind you, you know, the week prior to this was actually the Fed meeting. Week prior or two weeks ago before this, that the Fed had met and kind of restated that they plan on moving in a very hawkish uh, 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 actually, it was right around then that they were beginning to pivot, I think, towards the more dovish side. Um, and then ultimately after this was when they kind of finished pivoting through January and they're still kind of you know on this pausing pathway. Uh, but people were wondering, why is, uh, the tr- why is Stephen Mnuchin uh, so worried about this? Why was he so worried about the economy or the financial system that he called the CEOs and put together the plunge protection team. And I think that's the right question to ask if the financial system is stable, if he's not at all concerned about, as he talks about, clearance or margin issues, that the markets, he's not concerned about them not functioning properly. Why is this happening? I think it was done with the intent to calm markets and did exactly the opposite. And today, 
here at the end of April, beginning of May, in this time span, I think what we're seeing right now in the markets is is a similar complacency, a similar vulnerability to some sort of a shock. And I think tomorrow, the Fed is, is meeting, or I should say today and tomorrow they're meeting. Tomorrow they're going to be releasing their statement. Uh, Jerome Powell, I believe, is going to be doing a press conference. And I think that with this vulnerability, I think it's going to lead to quite a bit of volatility, not necessarily in terms of the VIX. I'll get to that in a second, the volatility index for the S&P 500. But volatility, a lot of, of very rapid movements in the markets. I think a lot of people aren't really paying too much attention to this. Nobody expects the Fed to raise rates or cut rates tomorrow, with the exception of maybe, uh, what is it, the the um, interest on uh, excess reserves rate, which they might cut by like point, you know, like five bips, um, 0.05%. Uh, that's on a related topic, um, that, that decision that they may make. But otherwise, nobody's expecting them to do that. And yet, the guidance that the Fed gives tomorrow, I think, could move markets uh, very rapidly from the dollars, uh, the dollar index to the stock market. And I think what they end up doing will have quite a bit of an influence on the financial system. Basically, uh, the Fed really has two choices tomorrow. I, I mean, it's, it's hawkish or dovish. What are they going to do? Are they going to pave it a little bit back to more towards the hawkish side and say that, hey, quarter one GDP was pretty strong, Unemployment is very low, and they look at those two data points, and they say a rate hike this summer in the fall, not out of the question. Or are they going to go in the other direction and say inflation is really low right now, and that could warrant some sort of easing or certainly not tightening right now, right? How dovish are they going to be there? And the way I see this playing out, I think it's going to be interesting either way. If they pivot dovish, to more to the dovish side, and they focus on, on what I see as, as quite a bit of a threat to the financial system right now. That is is um, liquidity of major banks. In fact, uh, this is Charlie McElligot from from Nimura. Uh, this was an article that was run by Zero Hedge uh, last uh, yesterday, actually, in which he's talking about you know when the Fed cuts rates, we might see a, a half percentage uh, rate cut because of. Um, U.S. bank liquidity concerns and a dollar shortage, meaning increased funding, when in, increased rates in terms of U.S. dollars. How we could see a surprise rate cut by the Fed, or at least they're going to start telegraphing that uh, pretty soon here. Um, and so, you know, they could give that reasoning. They could say low inflation, whatever it is. But if they move to the dovish side, I think what we're going to see is obviously the dollar come down, that's going to remove actually quite a bit of pressure over the short term on, I think, financial markets, the financial system. Obviously, I'd be very bullish for silver and gold. Now, what that means for the stock market is a little bit uncertain, right? They could, the stock market could interpret that as fear about economic growth. Additionally, another thing the Fed could do is telegraph a sooner end to quantitative tightening, which would work towards those same goals of raising inflation um, and, 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 you know, reducing some constraints on the system. And again, you know, that could be interpreted as as, as the Fed saying uh, maybe economic growth isn't as great as we thought. But we also know that the stock market uh, uh, acts pretty strongly on on uh, what the Fed does, especially to the downside. And, and they could, you know, use that as justification to move up another 5%, another 10%. But on the flip side, if the Fed is caught 
being a little complacent or, or maybe a little, I guess, too uh, confident based on GDP numbers, based on unemployment numbers, and they do telegraph some some hawkishness, the potential for rate cuts or, or sorry, uh, rate hikes in the future, um, even in 2019. That's when things get interesting because that's not what's a, what the market is looking for right now. It's not what Trump is looking for right now. In fact, he came out today and, and said, in fact, I'll read the tweet for you. Two tweets here. China is adding great stimulus to its economy while at the same time keeping interest rates low. Our Federal Reserve has incessantly lifted interest rates, even though inflation is very low, and instituted a very big dose of quantitative tightening. We have the potential to go up like a rocket if we did some lowering of rates, like one point, one percentage point, and some quantitative easing. Yes, we're doing very well at 3.2% GDP, but with our wonderfully low inflation, we could be setting major records and at the same time making our national debt start to look small. I'll get to that tweet here in a second. But if the Fed comes out and, and telegraphs hawkishness, that's where things really get interesting. The stock market over the short term could go up on that news. But I think it's, it's, it's getting really dicey out there. I think it's getting very vulnerable in terms of, of the uh, stability of, I guess, the financial system and of the market. First of all, by telegraphing hawkishness, you're, you're, you're going to likely spark a rally in the dollar. Not for sure. You know, markets sometimes do the whole, you know, buy the, buy the uh, rumor, sell the news type of thing. But over the long term, that would be my expectation. If they continue with their current quantitative tightening plan, that would certainly... Uh, uh, be be bullish for the dollar index, and I think that's going to add to this this dollar problem, this dollar shortage problem, increased pressure on on emerging markets and the financial system, even here in the United States. And that's where it gets really risky because I'll remind you that despite this Trump tweet, despite whatever the Fed says tomorrow, uh, to either way, uh, to, to dovish or hawkish, the U.S. stock markets are basically at an all time high, and the volatility index is very low. The VIX. In fact, you can look at it right now. As I speak, the VIX index is around 13. That's a far cry from where it was um, you know, during the fall of 2018. Even much of the first quarter of 2019, it's mostly been moving to the downside this thus far, since, you know, again, since uh, December 24th. Moving to the downside. And you're seeing a huge amount of people pile into short volatility positions. Much like what we saw in the melt-up phase uh, in early 2018, and then we had the VIX, uh, VIX explosion, right? The, the blow-up of the uh, inverse VIX index, and, 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 or the inverse VIX uh, uh, exchange-traded product. And you saw a, a very sharp drop in the stock market, a lot of fears about what was going on. And, and what's really interesting about this whole concept of volatility and short volatility, you know, I'd have to find the exact name of this guy that I was listening to give this interview. This is some months ago on the Macro Voices podcast. Maybe somebody can, some, can enlighten me on this. I forget his name. Uh, but basically what he was talking about is the idea of being implicitly or explicitly short volatility. And what he means by that is you can be explicitly short volatility by shorting the VIX, by buying or going long on the inverse of the VIX, and similar methods like that, like directly betting on volatility going down. Or 
what you can do is you can be implicitly short volatility. And what that means is that you're positioned in the market in a way that if volatility spikes, you're going to lose money. You're going to lose on your investment even if you aren't explicitly betting on volatility going down. And the implicit bets on volatility are much, much higher.